This is Coda Radio, episode 371, for August 19th, 2019. And welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes, and of course, I'm joined by Mike. Welcome, Mike. Misa here, round two, Wes! Uh, oh no, no, it, it's Jar Jar. I, I didn't plan for this. Where's Mike? What have you done with Mike, Jar Jar? I put him back in the legacy bin. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. Never mind. That's fine. That's where he belongs. All right. How are you, Wes, now that I'm back? Get out of here. You get... Stop licking the floor. What are you doing? Ugh. Yeah, he's he's pretty gross, but... Yeah, he's just... He understands Coda Radio comes first, of course. Oh, I, I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about something a little more abstract today. But before we do, let's get into some feedback. We got an email from our friend Bob who wanted to write to us a little bit about your adventures with Clojure. Thanks for the great show. I'm really enjoying the Seven Languages segment. I just wanted to share it with Mike that if he's looking for a good free resource for Clojure, check out Clojure for the Brave and True. You can read it online for free or buy the book. You might also want to check out Living Clojure by Karen Meyer and Getting Clojure by Russ Olson. And I'll just say here myself, those are all great resources. I have to say, a few people re- recommended uh, Closure for the Brave and True, and it looks very cool. I'm, I'm going to pick it up because, you know, I feel like not knowing a lisp at all is it's just a big gap. Yeah, and what's nice about that book is um, it's, it's very approachable. All the examples are very fun and get you coding right away. To, to, it was a little less, um, in air quotes here, academic than the sort of thing I wanted personally so it wasn't my favorite but uh i've recommended it to other people who just really love it so it's it's definitely worth checking out bob continues at the end of the last show you mentioned that you had to take some time to think about the code that you were writing in closure before you started to code i know you may have found this frustrating but i also think that part of writing good closure code is taking the time to Think through the problem that you're attempting to solve. Thinking about the problem could take the form of leveraging the REPL to work out code to solve a problem, or you could spend some time away from your computer screen, or in hammock time, working out problems. If I've learned anything from Clojure's creator, Rich Hickey, it's programming is not about typing. It's about thinking. Also, in reference to what Mike said about talking more about Lisp and its influences on programming. Two interesting Lisp slash scheme languages you might check out are Racket and Extempore. And I've not played with the latter, but Racket is definitely worth looking at if you just want to use a, a modern scheme. All right, well, that all sounds great. Yeah, I'm definitely looking to to look more into Lisp just to kind of fill that hole. Um, and yeah, I agree. It, yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, we'll see. Maybe you'll make a closure convert out of me yet, Wes. We'll have links to the handy things Bob linked to us. And I will also say, 
thinking more and typing less is something we could all do better at. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Moving right along, uh, a story I wanted to check back in on. Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about the uh, surprising proof of the sensitivity conjecture. And I happen to notice a little update uh, over in the comments on Scott Aronson's blog post about that proof. Well, no one else but famous Don Knuth showed up to present an even simpler version he'd made after, you know, reading the proof, seeing a couple other suggestions from people in the comments there. He distilled that all down, and instead of a two-page proof, well, now it's one page. What can you say to that other than Knuth is key? Yeah, I just think it's it's great to see, you know, he's contributed so much to computer science. Um, and, and a commenter over on Hacker News, I think, put it put it really well. Note what Knuth has done here. He's taken a published paper, understood it well, thought hard about it, and come up with what he feels is the best way to present this result. And this has been his primary activity all his life. With the art of computer programming, every page is full of results from the research literature that Knuth has often understood better than even the original authors and presented in a great and uniform style. He's basically digested the entire computer science literature, passed it through his personal interestingness filter, and presented it as as something interesting. And that's what he's doing here too. And I think it's just an interesting reflection. You know, we think we think a lot about actually, you know, produced work, but thinking is work too. And oftentimes, you know, even if you're not the original researcher, being able to look at multiple people's work, distill things, summarize it, improve, refine. You know, it, there's there's kind of multiple roles there. Some people really excel at just banging code out, you know, getting the, the first implementation done. And others excel at taking existing code and tweaking it and refining it and making it better. And there's value in all those roles. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and, and also what struck me about this is kind of the open sourcey spirit of this, right? That, you know, another, um, another I, I won't say academic, but another, you know, researcher into the field. Um, although he is an academic, I don't know why I wouldn't say that. Um, I guess if you, yeah, that's a distinction without a difference. Published a paper. It was fundamentally sound. Uh, Knuth saw that he could make it better, contributed back the changes. Is that not the spirit of, let's say, the GPL or hell, even a, I mean, I know the BSD is a bad example because people can take it away, but a, a free software open source ethos, is that not the spirit of the whole plan we're trying to do here? No, it very much is. And I think there are, you know, many kindred spirits and principles between academia at its best and open source at its best. Unfortunately, you know, this is coder radio and we can't be all positive. That's never going to work. So, especially me. I mean, I could try. You could try, but you've already failed for this episode because you wanted to talk about something that I'm sure we've all been frustrated with. And it sounds like you've got a particular example that motivated this whole discussion. What we're talking about here are leaky abstractions. You know, I think the best way just to approach this is real quick, um, make sure we define what an abstraction is, right, before I dive into my little war story here. Um, And I'm going to give my definition. Other people have, including Joel Olsen, not Joel Olsen, it's very different, Um, Joel Spolsky, have um, defined it and talked about it in greater depth. We have links to all that in the show notes. But Wes, would you agree with the definition of a leak abstraction is 
an attempt in a in a piece of software to kind of fluff away uh, complications in implementation details and give you a nice interface to either functionality or running on different operating systems or interacting with different services. Is that a fair working definition? Right, and we're just talking about abstraction in, in, in general here, or at least in the, in the common uh, programming sense. Right, we're, we're purely talking about right, in, software engineering here, right? So I really don't want to make you this happy today, Wes, because you know what? You, 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 just, you just hate Rails. And um, it, it is indeed in Rails, this leaky abstraction. I see. Yeah, okay. But I, I do think I like your definition. Um, you know, oftentimes abstractions lift things to a higher level and, you know, remove some unnecessary details. You know, oftentimes it's about finding the, you know, the sort of same thing um, or ways that you can have very similar behavior and not have to worry about what's different at least most of the time, right? I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, a common example might be implementing um, a common operation across all kinds of, of data structures, right? Uh, as long as the performance characteristics are roughly the same, you don't have to care, right? As long as you can say like, hey, I want to add this thing to your structure. I don't, I don't care how you do it. You cover that up for me and I'll just walk away and have a simple interface to understanding this. So I had a project that uses very large files. I think I mentioned it in passing a few times. A lot of color OBJs and STL files. Oh, this is the STL project. I see. Yes. And it is um, being deployed to AWS using S3 for storage. Pretty standard, right? Nothing nothing controversial there, I would say. Well, to be to be clear here, right, you're also, um, it's running on AWS and then you're storing large files remotely onto, I mean, it's still within AWS, whatever, but uh, onto the S3 service. And then you're having some library here, I assume, or a, a part of Rails that's kind of making that somewhat transparent? Right, so active storage, which is a part of Rails, but you do have to install a gem. Um, Basically, Active Storage is a file storage and retrieval solution that's meant, it's really meant for large files, but a lot of people use it just for everything because it's relatively easy to use. And it abstracts away the file store you're using. So for instance, uh, the basic, you know, 500 word blog post version of it, you're going to see how to use Active Storage. is just saving things to like var slash rails, whatever, right? Or it's like rails slash storage. And that's it. Ah, right. Just dumping it, whatever, on the local machine. Um, it will work with AWS S3, Azure, the name of the solution escapes me, but their version of S3. Um, Minio, which is key here, which Minio is a open source project. Um, we've mentioned it years ago on the show that they do a lot more than they used to now, but the, the way I've been using them is they implement the S3 API, but you can run it locally. Ah, local S3. Um, is this only for testing or also for production use? No, Minio is a pretty robust production solution. So if you're concerned, like they have this whole AI pitch they're doing now, which I, I don't know a lot about. I haven't used them for anything like that. But if you're looking for file storage um, and you don't want to be external to your, let's say your intranet or you, know, you just don't want it in S3, but you want all the goodness that comes with S3, yeah, you can you can just set up a RAID array or whatever and you're good to go. Um, I actually have people using it. It works great. So I thought, okay, because I need you know I need to test a lot of this stuff. These files are big. It takes a long time to load them to S3. It's also kind of like expensive because of how AWS and S3 work. 
let me just like set up a Minio instance locally. And it's the same API calls, it, and it's all abstracted away by active storage, which when I first started using Minio, it wasn't. Um, used to actually have to use the AWS gem directly. So I get everything working. Now there is a processing step I have to do with these files that I was using a method in active storage called path for, which is pretty simple. On an active storage object, you can call path for and get a, um, a temporary file path, or I guess if you're storing locally in like slash rails, it's a permanent file path. Ah, I see. And and if it's not locally, then it's some yeah layer on top there. Well, that's what I thought. I thought it was supposed to be. Turns out that's not that is the case in some systems. In Minio, that is the case. In S3, it just fails. Really. Right, and because I was doing this on a background worker process, it doesn't 500 or anything, it just fails silently. So it works in testing, works on localhost, fails in production. I'm seeing over at Minio here, uh, they say, 100% open source, enterprise grade, Amazon S3 compatible object storage. It's interesting then, then that, you know, did something change? It works on Minio, but not on S3, and in theory, the API is the same, right? So the API is exactly the same. So the irony is it's because of the abstraction in active storage, right? This method is in active storage, not in the the AWS gem. Mm, I see. And it's like, it's funny, in the documents for 4Path for on, um, on the Rails documentation, it doesn't mention that it doesn't work in a few of the sources. Only in Stack Overflow can you see the the whales of the desperate. Of course. <laughs> Wondering why this worked on localhost or on their whatever weird dev uh, testing implementation that I had. Would they find, oh yeah, it just fails on S3 because Amazon doesn't let you do that. And they don't for good reasons, right? Security. But again, if it's the internet, you don't care. So, okay. It took me about a half a day to figure out what was going on there. Not to fix it, right? Because once I figured out what was going on, you know, there's many solutions. Convert the file to a binary and do it that way. Yeah, how, what, what did the debugging process look like here? Because when you started, you, you probably didn't know where the error was happening. Well, I did what I always do. I roll back the deployment. I go to the testing environment, and I'm like, okay, let me reproduce this. Spent a significant amount of time doing that. But again, you said, it, it, yeah, you couldn't, right? Because you're using Minio there. Right. So then I started adding more logging. Eventually, I, I'm actually. I was just. We can, we can name drop some gems here. Um, I was using another gem called Sucker Punch to do some backgrounding on these files. Sucker Punch basically is another abstraction on doing background processes in Rails. Turns out the logging on production did catch the error, but threw it as it didn't like completely error out. It just put it in the log, and too many things were happening. The log kept refreshing, so I had to search specifically for a background error. Eventually, once I had the error, I, I did what everybody does, right? I Googled it. Yep, that's exactly what it is. You can no longer do that in S3. I felt like you used to be able to, but most of my deployments are internal, and a lot of them are using things like Minio or alternatives to that. So I was pretty, pretty shocked that the Rails documentation didn't actually say that that method doesn't work, right? It doesn't error out in your debugger, it just errors out in production. 
Which is uh, always the worst kind of error. Oh, that, that is the definition of a leaking abstraction, right? Because this path four is supposed to do whatever it needs to do for each different file hosting environment. And you don't need to care, right? As long as you have the credentials, as long as you have the keys in your environment variables or however you want to do that, it doesn't matter. But there's just like one thing in the S3 implementation of this that this one little piece of functionality doesn't work. Everything else works fine. And that is your abstraction leaking. What do you say, Wes? Is that a leaky abstraction or do you, do you, think, do you think not? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, right? Because obviously you were using this um, active storage method because it was useful, right? I mean, it was... A, and part of Rails, right. Right, and it was a, abstracting over things for you, right? I mean, how much more difficult was the, you know, the, the work around here? Like, it was, is the abstraction still useful um, or have you had to abandon it entirely because of this leak? Or is it just sort of, um, you know, a minor leak that you patch up a little bit in the production case and have to, you know, make some modifications? Like, does it feel gross to you what you've had to do to solve it? And are you still using that method everywhere? Um, I'm still using active storage. In fact, this is going back to our feedback, think more, code less. The challenge was just figuring out where the abstraction was. Solving it was, I don't love the solution. It's It's basically temporarily throwing around binary data but it works and the nice thing i like about the solution i implemented it works in localhost the testing environment and production so there's not like this crazy case of doing like switches you know like compiler flags or if defing your way through to say am i in prod i personally hate that i think that's a huge code smell if you're doing stuff like that um again i'm not starting to sort of flame more with anybody but yeah i mean I think it's funny, and it's why when I slacked you, I was like, we have to talk about leaky abstractions. Because you would think, right, in Rails, when you see anything that starts active, insert other word here, that's usually rock solid. Right, that's one of the great things about about Rails, right, is it's just been used to build these kinds of services for so long and in so many cases that it it basically has a good solution for everything. Exactly, and this was just one case where... You know, once you know it, you know it forever, and you just know you can't you can't call that helper method on um, on a environment using S three. But figuring that out, damn, that's I mean, that requires you paying deep attention to logs. You have to already have your logging set up in your production environment, which I know a lot of people don't do. So it's it's a pretty I won't say annoying, but it it's not the way you want to spend half your day. No, no, definitely not. But the alternative is terrible, right? The alternative is implementing three solutions for three different environments. I like this quote you put in the doc kind of relatedly. Since all non-trivial abstractions are imperfect and will leak in one way or another, this means any serious programmer should always have at least a minimal knowledge of the abstractions they use. This usually means knowing a bit about how your CPU works, how your network protocols work, how your kernel works, and so on. Yeah, exactly. And that seems true, right? I mean, if you're there's just no way that you can escape thinking about your system. And abstractions are useful tools, and I don't think, you know, the existence of these of, of leaky abstractions of problems where it's frustrating. There are times maybe where you've chosen the wrong abstraction or it's just not possible to, you know, to abstract that in that way under these circumstances, but even in your case, you'd be able to, you know, sort of patch things up and make it work. Right, and it and it's a uh, 
you know, it's a leak you only only miss once, right? So now you know forever that, okay, Amazon S3, active storage, it doesn't allow the helper method. I saw another article about this, and they had a great example. Think about garbage collection. It hides manual memory management. But as anyone who uses it knows, sometimes getting peak performance is hard work. You'd still have to think about it, right? Um, you pay the cost of garbage collection, of course, and you may have to go try to tune things. You may have to try to reuse stuff instead of freeing and reallocating new objects. You end up having to engage with and think about how the garbage collector works. But is it unsuitable or just incomplete? It depends. It could be an unsuitable abstraction for whatever task you're doing, saying you're trying to make a very you know low latency sort of system or building a game and you just need to do manual memory management. Or you could have kind of an incomplete abstraction, something you need to extend or, or work with better and find the right garbage collector and the right settings for it so that it works for your particular case. But you still don't have to think about all of the nitty gritty of memory management work. Either way, you end up having to understand some of your problem domain. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? You can't just you can't just blindly uh, trust the abstraction and hope it'll all work out. Another common case, I'm, I'm not sure it's directly applicable, and I'm curious what you think, and it kind of ties back in with um, with Rails, and that's the use of uh, ORMs, right? Object relational mapping, because you know, you'll find a, a subset of people who really just prefer to, to write the query themselves and will often say like, well, look, I end up having to write the query myself or waste a bunch of time fighting with the ORM to try to get it to produce the query that I know that it should be so that it's actually performant on the SQL backend. But at the same time, you know, you're writing a, you're writing a CRUD app and an ORM just like does most of the work for you. Yeah, I tend to lean on the, I'm, I'm curious where you fall on this, I tend to lean on the pro-ORM side of life here. So you end up engaging more with the relational idea, I guess, right? The sort of nature of, of how those are constructed. But there are some libraries that try to smooth things over, right? Like there are cases where the mappings are work out pretty cleanly, right? You have some some map or struct or an object that has some fields and those just, you know, they, they end up just mapping to columns and the rows and it, and it all just sort of works for you. I think it just shows again that, you know, anytime this is non-trivial and complex, it's, it's going to be hard. And probably there's, um, you know, a, a trade-off you have to consider too with how familiar you are and how familiar you want to be with the system. Now, performance is almost always going to be the real limiting factor, right? Like, if it, if it doesn't work for the performance that you need, it's not going to work. Um, but if you're already familiar with SQL, it may be easier for you to use a sort of more minimal system, right? Where you might want some helper methods, something that can easily translate and store an object, but you don't need these like, you know, complicated joins being constructed for you and to, to go to that level. Yeah, I mean, the whole ORM thing is tough, right? Because most of the time, you don't need it, at least in a Rails application. I'm sorry, you don't need to drop to um, uh, you know raw SQL queries, but there's usually one or two in every application that you, you you kind of end up doing. Right, right. It's on the hot path. It happens a lot, or for some reason, it's the ORM is just getting it kind of wrong. Right, or it's just like the the code you have to write to make Active Record do what you want is so just gnarly. Right. Gross. Yeah. Gnarly. Hard to understand. Right. That, that, 
yeah, that having a stored procedure for that is just easier. But yeah, I, I tend to try to do everything I can in Active Record. And then if we really have to go ahead and get a stored procedure. I think one aspect that you can't ignore when you're talking about leaky abstractions and abstractions in general, um, and it, it's something we kind of talked about a little bit without naming it in the last episode, um, and that's choosing the right level of distraction. Last week, you were talking a bit about, you know, large legacy C-sharp code bases, and I've, I've certainly seen sometimes in large, older OO projects that things just get abstracted too early and too far so that you end up with so many layers of abstraction that it's hard to find where the the concreteness is actually happening. And that's important, right? Because with abstractions are useful, but at the end of the day, there's implementations down there and you're going to need to know them, especially as you're learning a new code base. And it can be nice to have a layer of abstraction added if you know that you really need multiple implementations but I'm sure you've seen cases where, you know, a bunch of abstractions are added and then there's only ever one implementation for each of them. It's, you know, this is probably one of the most common disagreements I think developers have, right? Is what level do you start at in terms of implementing abstractions or dropping down um, to a lower level, layer, whether that's database or cross-platform, right? Because all even in the cross-platform world, Xamarin, um, you know, Flutter, whatever it's called, all of that stuff is just an abstraction, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, of course, right? It's trying to smooth things over so you can talk about uh, a generic input element and not worry that on the Linux desktop, it's totally different than iOS. I mean, the Linux desktop is iOS, though, right? Am I confused? Kidding. Oh, no, I think I think that head injury was more serious than we thought, Mike. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, of course those are abstractions, and they are useful, right? I mean, look at... Um, Look at the, the popularity of cross-platform frame like, frameworks like that, or, or things like React Native, Electron. There are a lot of things you just don't want to think about, and that can be useful. I don't know. You just always have to end up thinking about some aspect of it, or you need to be aware. And so that's why the case you ran into is kind of interesting, because... I'm sure if you'd seen a little caveat declared for that, you know, or maybe a table of, um, you know, backends that are supported with that, that, that works, that would have been very useful knowledge up front because it's okay that, it, you know, there's, there's no denying that it can't work. It's not their fault. There's no, you know, it, it's still a useful abstraction for a majority of use cases. It just has its natural limits. Right. For the vast majority of, yeah. There's just this, like one operation where it doesn't make sense. This is one of those things that I, that I do think about, like, I, I hate to say the E word, but electron, right? A story came out today where there's some, uh, so an Ars Technic, and I'll find the link, some potential backdoor on electron apps, which I think we are both currently running. I mean, how much bigger of an abstraction can you get than that, right? It does also show, right, though, like, I mean, think about the the popularity. And I I imagine there's many... I'm thinking of this as a desktop Linux user here, but probably many applications that wouldn't necessarily target the Linux desktop without that level of abstraction being available, right? Because without the abstractions, you just you have to end up learning more. If if when they work, they can really successfully hide things from you. And, you know, the Linux desktop or or whatever small market 
doesn't usually have the necessary weight to demand that level of resource to go implement basically, you know, something that could be abstracted over because it wasn't fundamentally different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, and there, there's tons of examples, right? I mean, Electron's probably the most glaring, but there's Q is, is actually in itself an abstraction. Um, though I would argue operating in a much lower layer, although maybe not, right? C++ is an abstraction, which is the language you tend to be developing when using Q. Um, Objective-C is an abstraction, although it's amazing and glorious and we should all be using it. Yeah, I mean, really, our whole world is is based on that, right? I mean, even if you're programming in assembly language, well, these days, that's just, uh, you know, that gets compiled to, to the real operations going on under the hood. I liked um, the way this was put over at the principles wiki. A solution is bad if, A, the leakiness of abstractions is ignored, B, the benefits of the abstraction cannot justify the disadvantages created by the leakiness. Or C, the abstraction is just more leaky than necessary, meaning you've, you know, maybe chosen the wrong abstraction. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, that's, so where do you fall in the abstraction hierarchy? Are you, are, do you start, like, I think I'm pretty clear, I start at the high level and move down when I need to. Do you is that how you also operate, Wes? Or do you, do you prefer to, I don't know, somewhere in the middle, low level? Yeah, probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I think they're very valuable. Uh, one thing about, like, say, Python that I think it, that it could do to have better is is some of these abstraction toolings. I mean, you've got, like, the double underscore methods and all that, but um, I think, like, Java interfaces are are just a, a good way to think about things and in many cases or the closure version is, is protocols right these sort of groupings of methods that operate on uh, that can be implemented by different data types it's reasonable to want to abstract early with the um you know especially if you're thinking about what's going to go wrong later or are we going to add more backends for this right like oh i need to talk to this service but we might want to have a second service that does the same thing as a backup or as a you know to talk to both of them at the same time. And that's fine. I would just caution that you should also be trying to keep things flexible enough and easy to change enough that adding abstractions later shouldn't be difficult, right? Like you, I guess I'm in the middle where like I, you should be thinking about it and, and programming in a way that allows for it to be added, not, but not necessarily adding it concretely all the time. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's so funny. Um, th- that's exactly one of the use cases that Active Storage is meant to help if you want to have a duplicate service implemented, right? There's actually right in the config file, you consider mirrors. You can do S3 and again, whatever Azure's version is or Minio and something else, right? Right. Or I mean, DigitalOcean has one that's S3 compatible. There's tons of them. Yeah, DO has one now, right? So whatever is... Um, the whole idea being by using the abstraction, implementing the second service is quote-unquote free. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. This is, this is hard stuff um, because there's, it's just so context-dependent and it depends a lot on you know what you're doing, how long it's going to live, and how much it might grow. And those aren't always clear at the time you're actually creating it. We'll, of course, have links to all the things we talked about and maybe you have some good ideas or guides or you know ways to think about the right level of abstraction or favorite 
tools to deal with leaky abstractions? If so, let us know over at coder.show slash contact. Now, Mike, we took a little bit of a break. You were you were traveling. There was a lot of things going on behind the scenes for both of us. But it's time again for our seven languages challenge. And you need a new language. I do. I know you're just jonesing for it. And hands are shaking. Who am I to stand in your way? I mean, look at you. You look horrible. You need something to play with, to get excited by. Sweating. I'm crying. It's terrible. Yeah. And I know, you know, you were just kind of burned by rails here. So I thought, well, we'll keep you kind of close to rails in Ruby, but also mix everything up. Let's have you try Crystal. You know I like my gemstone named languages, right? Oh, I sure do. Crystal's build as a language that's fast as C and slick as Ruby. Mm, I've been lied to before. <laughs> yeah, but you'll also find that Crystal's statically typed and seemingly very efficient. Got, you know, non-nullable things, null checks, so you've got that safety added. They've also got a powerful macro system. And green threads, also known as fibers, for as a concurrency model. So that's exciting. Um, that's something you encountered in a, in a somewhat different variant over when you were playing with Elixir. True, true. Yeah, and you know, I did take a brief look at Crystal, and I have to say, I cannot deny that my heart has desired this Galadriel here. Yeah, you know, it seemed it seemed like it might make sense to me because you've also been dabbling with Rust. So perhaps something that has some of the similar properties, you know, nice a nice robust type system, but can also target somewhat more lower level tasks might be something you would actually use in your toolkit. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. So I saw you had a pick for us this week, Wes, or two even. Well, one of them is really a supplement to the first. So it's like your vitamin C pick. Okay, I got you. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, this whole episode has been, you know, it kind of started off in the Ruby world, and we might as well end it that way too. And that's why I've picked Effect, an algebraic effects library for Ruby. (laughs) Yeah, okay, if, you might, if you're not really familiar with that, let's say you're trying to do some, you know, more functional Ruby. You've, you've tasted it. You're, you're Mike here, right? You've tasted the, the functional world. You want more of it, but Ruby pays your bills. Well, Affect is a tiny Ruby gem providing a way to isolate and handle side effects in functional programs. Affect implements algebraic effects in Ruby but can also be used to implement other patterns like object-oriented programming, inversion of control, and dependency injection. Um, They've got some nice examples here, and one of the the key things they're talking about here is pushing I.O. to the boundaries or other, you know, stateful stuff, right? And and we've talked about this before, too, where that stuff's hard to test, right? You end up needing to do, um, you know, integration stuff or crazy mocking and stubbing, and it it just gets rough, Um, so one of the advantages of a library like this is you can use its facilities to to do this for you because instead of actually sending I.O., say, you're communicating with this algebraic effects system and then it's actually going to go do all of that for you. So you can test your stuff just by, you know, making sure that you've sent the right information to the library. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm down with that. Behind the scenes, well, there's kind of 
a lot going on. It's it's a cool concept, algebraic effects. And really at this stage, it's more of a research programming language feature. I'm less down with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're probably not going to run this in production. And in fact, you probably shouldn't. But I think it's a useful model and it's nice to play with new ways of thinking about things, right? And And trying to add tools that help you separate concerns, push state to the edges, and keep things pure. So, you know, maybe maybe don't go deploying effect where, wherever you need it to be. But I think it's a practical example of actually using algebraic effects. And I didn't want to just like link to a PDF that talks about it and has a bunch of math. But I saw th that this came out and I thought, if anyone's actually interested, they want to go play with this, you can still read a bunch of nerdy PDFs and you can try to use it in some toy programmings and see what it might be like. And, and as always, Wes is trying to educate you. And I'm trying to make you not have to know things. So my pick is Minio. Pretend like those uh, servers and S3 instances aren't there. It's great. Don't worry about it. How long have you been using it? I mean, you're you're deploying it like all over the place? Oh, Minio, several years. Several years. Um, it's actually funny. I haven't been to their like their main non-GitHub website since for a few years since today. I had no idea that they had this whole AI like library thing going on too. Oh, it's 2019 now, Mike. Everyone does. Yes, I have Alice. I um, keep deciding if C-sharp was a good or bad choice, which we should have a conversation about in a few weeks. Um, but yeah, they have a lot going on. I can't vouch for anything else, but I can tell you, as a open source, make your own little RAID array and store your files. Top shelf. Thanks for the great pick this week. Thank, thank you. Where, now, where can people find you to learn more about computer science and calculus. Oh, you can find me rambling about things over on Twitter at Wes Payne. And of course, they can find you trolling the universe over there too, right? That's uh, on Twitter at Dumanuko and visit DominicM.com. I will be writing up the horrors of abstractions this week. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. You can also find the whole network over at Jupiter Signal or jupiterbroadcasting.com where you'll also find the calendar that'll let you know when we're doing this show live and if you have the time available well we'd love to see you over in the irc room or just tuning in live when you have a chance of course there's also a ton of other great jupiter broadcasting shows so check those out too or if you just want coder radio well coder.show there you can contact us or just subscribe to the rss feed which is the easiest way to make sure you always get the latest episode. Thank you all so much for joining us, and we'll see you right back here next week.